The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I need to quiet my heart. <laughs> Draw it together, come to the Lord. Listen to a few verses, then we'll pray. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Good God. Good and gracious Lord. I ask you, quiet our hearts. Draw us to you. Remind us of your promise to deliver us from all trouble. We need that promise, and we need that promise kept because there is trouble in this world. Trouble out there, trouble within. Promise to encamp around those who fear you. So give us grace to turn our hearts towards you, to trust you, to lean on you, and deliver us from this trouble. And Lord, I pray that you would use today's passage to further that to remind us of the deliverance that has happened, of the deliverance that is coming, and to use that to deliver right now. To save us from trouble right now. Within. God, I need that. My brothers and sisters here need that. Those here who are not yet my brothers and sisters who don't know you, they need it most. So fall on us, I pray, Lord. Send your Spirit here to encamp around, to hover over, to work within, speak. God, create joy within. Show us yourself. Highlight before our eyes the cross and create joy within. Joy over the deliverance that has happened and will yet happen. This is my prayer. Honor the Son. Feed your people, I pray. Amen. The main problem that Jesus is aiming at addressing this morning is seen in the words that frame the heart of our passage in John 16. Weep, lament, sorrow, anguish, tribulation. When I don't seem to be who you thought I was, he says to his disciples. When you see me arrested and killed and buried, and I leave you here all alone with a world that's hostile to you, wants to persecute you, and even wants to kill you, and I let that happen. Or, as he says to us, when you struggle with sin, are filled with questions that you don't know the answers to, when you seek to follow me, but yet are filled with heartache as your kids walk away from you, 
and walk away from me. As you struggle with persecution from the world around you, as your bodies give out and you get cancer, these and a whole host of other things that come at you in life, when that happens, and it will happen, that is the world that we live in. In this world, you will have trouble, plenty of it. When that happens, what are you to do about it? How are you supposed to deal with it? So Jesus is getting at this morning. John chapter 16. He brings that up because it's real, and he's also going to bring up an answer to it. It's a common theme in, in John 16, and in John 15, and in John 14, in this section that's called the farewell discourse, because Jesus is saying, farewell, he's leaving. It's a common theme because it's a common part of life. That's what we're going to look at today. How do we deal with that problem? Trouble in life. We've been away from the book of John for three weeks now. So as we come back to it, I need to give us a little brief reminder about where we've been. We are in the final section, that farewell discourse, the final section of Jesus' teaching, and it's a long one. It began back in chapter 13, the Last Supper, when Jesus looked out and it says he determined to love his own, that is, his people, to love them by, as he goes to wash their feet, giving them an example of sacrificial love, an example that we are to follow with one another laying down our lives for this family, for this body. Not just when it's convenient for us, not when it serves to meet our needs, but when it serves to meet others' needs. Sacrificing ourselves for this group, loving one another. That's his command to us. We are to follow that. And it's an especially important command because, as he says, he's about to leave. And in a very real way, we are going to be the way that God loves the body. He's going to love through us critical that we get that down. But the comment about I'm leaving kind of catches everybody's attention. Draws the conversation off for a little while. What do you mean? Where are you going? How's that? And so Jesus begins to teach a little bit about heaven. About what that's like. About his return to get them. And he talks about how I'm not leaving you entirely alone. In fact, great blessing, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who will come and live within you. And then the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, becomes a major topic in 14 and 15 and on into 16. God the Spirit's going to come and He will teach. He'll guide. He'll produce holiness in people. He's going to make Jesus known more clearly and more widely across the whole earth, thereby glorifying Christ and building the church. He's going to convict people of sin. When's that going to happen? After Jesus leaves and the Spirit comes again in power. And the departure of Jesus is coming right up in just a little while. He said that back in 1333, and that's where He begins our passage today. Chapter 16, verse 16. Let me read the passage. I'll be reading from John 16, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, 
but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. passage begins with and then repeats again and again and again this phrase in a little while in the original language is actually only one word but it occurs seven times in these first couple of verses in a little while in a little while in a little while it's a very belabored way of retelling this conversation jesus says something they ask about what he said jesus wonders about what they were asking about what he said very belabored and when you see something like that you know pay attention to this there's an emphasis here because this is a critical thing. So they don't get it, but we have to. What does he mean by a little while? What's he getting at? A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again in a little while, and you will see me. What does that mean? He begins to explain it in verse 20. Truly, truly. Listen up. This is important. What's going to follow is important. Listen. Truly, truly. You want to know what I mean by in a little while? Here's what I mean. In a little while, you will weep and lament you will be sorrowful it's are terms of a funeral what he's saying is in just a little while you're going to mourn what's he pointing to what, what's that getting at what's about to come up that's going to be a funeral the cross he's pointing out the the imminency of the cross it's right around the corner the pharisees are going to gloat the crowds are going to shout and sing for joy they're going to see me there tried and then nailed up, stripped naked and shamed, killed along with the scum of the earth. Finally, they dealt with me. But you don't see any of that coming, and you're going to be crushed. Crushed. You're going to look at me there, your best friend. We thought he was the one. What happened? How can we be wrong about that? And he didn't just die. He's humiliated. He can't be the Messiah like that. Grief is going to fill you in just a little while. I tell you truly, truly, that's coming up. 
But just a little while after that, it's all going to change. Joy is going to rush into you. Not unlike a woman giving birth. She has sorrow, not, not just sadness, but trouble and anguish. It's not just she's moping around. She's in anguish. She's giving birth. You know what that's like? Woman there, we are never doing this again. It's anguish. It's trouble. But that turns. When? When the child's born. Joy rushes in and sweeps all the anguish away, and it's almost as if it's forgotten. If you chart the emotions, it's, it's falling off a cliff and then shooting right back up to the ceiling there. So you can see why this analogy makes sense, why he, Jesus would use it to explain what's going to happen at the sorrow of the cross and the joy of the resurrection. There's more to it than just an apt illustration, charting the emotions. There's more to it. Jesus is re- not just reaching for just something that can be used to explain this change in emotions. He grabs hold of this analogy of the woman in birth because of the baggage that's attached to that particular analogy in the Old Testament and then the baggage that it carried in the religious culture of his day. In several places in the Old Testament, the prophets use this metaphor of the people of God as being like a woman in labor, looking forward to something, looking forward to delivery, deliverance from oppression of other people, deliverance from punishment, some sort of deliverance. They're looking forward to it, but it's not yet here, and so they are waiting. Deliverance that would come when? When the Messiah came. He would come and he would change everything. So the birth pains lead up to the Messiah and his deliverance. That's pictured in the Old Testament, and it was in the religious culture of his day. Consider for a minute Isaiah 26. You can jot that down and look at it later. It's kind of a lengthy passage, so I'm not going to read it all. But in that passage, we see the people of God pictured as a woman in labor, in anguish, unable to deliver. She can't accomplish. They can't accomplish their own deliverance. Nothing happens. But the passage also continues on by saying, yet there is going to be a deliverance. The earth, get this, the earth is going to birth its dead. The earth will bring forward its dead in joy. Resurrection. When's that going to happen? The passage continues and says to the people, wait just a little while till the Lord comes forth from his place to bring judgment. You could read the whole thing later. There's more there. But you hear some of the common terms there. Pains of childbirth, incomplete. An age of resurrection coming. When? Well, wait just a little while longer. Messiah's going to accomplish it. And Jesus grabs a hold of that analogy and applies it right here in this setting. In a little while, anguish will come upon you, and in a little while more, the joy of the Messiah's deliverance will come. That's what he's saying right there. John 16. Verse 22. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And then you're going to have joy. Joy that cannot be taken away from you. It won't ever be stripped away. Joy. When that happens, when you see me again, when I see you again, the resurrection is dawned and joy will cover you where there used to be anguish. You're going to understand all this later. You're not going to have to ask me questions about it later. Right now you don't get it. There's going to come a time when that happens when it all be clear.
Moreover, second aspect of the deliverance of the cross, middle 23, truly, truly, this also is important, listen up. In that day, you'll ask the Father, you'll pray to the Father in my name, and he'll give you those things. What's the result of that? Full joy again. Two things that he introduces there with truly, truly. Two things that come from the cross that lead to joy. And then he turns the corner and begins to close out the passage and actually this whole big section, I think. He says, I've been speaking to you in, in figurative language, but there's going to come a time when you're going to see it all clearly. The ministry of the Spirit he's alluding to. The time after the cross when they understand it all. And they affirm, yes, we understand that, we get it, but they don't. You've been in a conversation, I'm sure, maybe on both sides of the conversation, where somebody says something and then somebody else says something, it revealed they didn't understand what the first person said. That's what's going on here. Jesus says, in a little while I'm going to speak to you. There's time coming when it's all going to be clear. And they say it's all clear. And he says, not really. Do you really believe? You do believe, but not as robustly as you think. You're going to abandon me. But listen to what I've been saying and take heart. You're going to be troubled then. You're going to be troubled all in the days of this earth. Take heart and consider, I have overcome the world. I have conquered, it says. Not just endured or made it through, conquered, triumphed, cast down, become victorious over. Get your mind around that and take heart. That's the passage. That's the text. And Christ's aim in it, as I said, is to help people deal with trouble. To help the disciples right there deal with the the impending trouble of his departure. Their great disappointment in thinking about who he was. The dealing with the hostile world that's all around them. That's what he's trying to help them deal with. And for us, we're not dealing with exactly the same issue, but similar things. Jesus perhaps disappointing you. Not being who you think he should be dealing with a hostile world all around, and a whole host of other troubles and heartaches that come along as just part of being in this world. It's not exactly the same context, but it's clearly speaking to us about how to deal with trouble. And the answer that Jesus gives them here is to point them to the cross. So here's the main point for this morning. Contemplate the cross and find joy. Contemplate the cross and find joy. What he's done there, think about it. You know, your mind is always going to be given to something. It it is. It always is. Give it to the cross. Or, conversely, give the cross to your mind. Feed your mind with the cross and what has happened there. It's good food for thought. It will nourish you. If you live in that, immerse your mind in the cross, see it in front of you, joy will result. Two things that come up in this passage. I'm going to be focusing on the middle of the passage, not every detail of the whole thing. I'll be focusing on the middle where Jesus talks about two things that flow out of that are results from the cross that produce joy. First one's longer than the second one. Hope this will help us to contemplate the cross. So here's the first result of the cross. At the cross, the messianic deliverance has occurred. Big phrase just means the deliverance of the Messiah. A Messiah's deliverance of his people has happened at the cross. So to consistently reflect on the cross 
is to think about what he's done at the cross to deliver. Think about the problem first. The Old Testament is full of the concept that the people of God need deliverance. We need to be saved. And that God was going to provide that somehow, in some way or another. You and I, this is true about you. You and I, we each were born rebels in opposition to God. Against Him. He is pure. You are not. He is righteous. That means He always does and thinks and wants what is right. And you don't. He is just. We are not. And all along the way, we constantly fail to live up to His standards. And we constantly fail to give Him the honor, the glory that is due to His name, to give Him the thanks that He deserves. We fail at that. We rarely even try. He made this clear in the law which no one keeps. That is our personal sin problem. It's yours, it's mine, individually. Our sin problem. And then we make it worse by getting together and building societies. We can't avoid doing this, but we just compound the air. We take several hundred sinful people and put them together and we have multiplied sin. That's what John means when he talks about the world, this realm of fallenness that we have built. And the chasm between the world, this entity and the individuals in the world, the chasm between the world and God is vast. How can we deal with that problem? We cannot. With us, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God, in fact, promises to claim a people for himself out of the world, to deliver them. And again, 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 over and over in verbal prophecy and in concrete prophecy, examples, types, we talked about that, he points forward to a time when he will deliver his people permanently out of slavery into a land that is founded on righteousness and justice and peace and blessing. He's constantly pointing toward that. I will do it. I will do it. You cannot. But how? When? Ultimately through Messiah. Who is that? Nobody knew. But now we do. You do. And you look back at it, and it should, it should boggle your mind and blow you away as you think about deliverance has happened. All the things that I was just saying, you know them. The great danger is that you fall asleep, not only because it's 100 degrees in here, but you fall asleep because you're bored with them. There's a great danger in that. If you don't really think you had much of a problem, then the deliverance from that problem is not really that big of a deal. If I have a hangnail and somebody clips it off, I say, thanks. If I've got a two-by-four sticking in my head and somebody fixes that, I say, thanks. If my head has been lopped off and somebody somehow fixes that, I'm shocked. That's closer to what's happened. You were already dead. Not just on your way to death. Dead in sin. And God made you alive in Christ. Behold this great King crucified to save you. Look at the cross. Love is there. Grace is there. Justice is there. Mercy is there. 
at the cross which you needed and he provided. Delivered you from your personal sin problem and changed your eternity, if you're a Christian, that is. And more than that, that's the first, greatest, largest deliverance, but more than that, he has also overcome the world. That is, not just the problem in here, but the problem out there. At the cross, he pronounced death on death. He pronounced death on sin. Triumphed over it. Has set himself up as king and will bring all things to heal. The mortal blow has been struck. Yeah, there's still a battle out there, but it's all downhill from here. He's conquered the world. Deliverance has happened in here and out there. Brothers and sisters, I know this is all familiar to you and that you realize this, I realize this, believe me. I heard that before. So here's the question. Why are you not everlastingly joyful? Moment by moment by moment by moment, all the live long day, why are you not everlastingly joyful? I don't mean why are you not everlastingly giddy or constantly pleased with your circumstances or in some superficial emotional way like happy and cheery. That's not what I'm talking about troubles in this world, that's for sure. You have emotions, you're going to be struck by things, you're a real whole person. But are you, while sorrowing, ever rejoicing? I think about that verse all the time. I want to live in that verse, but I don't. Why don't you? Why are you not everlastingly joyful? Here's what I find in my own heart. The problem is not one of mental knowledge. It is one of mental discipline. The difference there. I can be just like those disciples in verses 29 and following. I get it. Yep, thanks. Got it. Heard that. I know. But when the chips are down, I find that I had a lot looser grip on that than I thought. And it has a lot looser grip on me than I thought. And I wander away. Back to my own home, if you will. I wander off from him and leave him. I can be just like that. Though I know all this stuff inside and out. I've been thinking about it, studying it, teaching it forever. But I'm still like that. What happens is that at any given moment, the tribulations of the world, the aches and pains that I feel in my own heart, the things that people do to me, they come alongside of me and they whisper to me, or they call out, or they sing, or they yell in certain ways that are compelling and attractive. And they, they loom up in front of me, and they, they're right here. Picture them as the tribulation or the trouble of my life sitting right there. And what happens is that I start to look at it first. And if the cross comes into view at all, it's out here somewhere. And the cross out here on the periphery is just an idea. It's a fact. This is what's got my attention. It's right here. And what results is that I want this. 
I want life, the pain, dealt with right now in a way that I like, in the timing that I like. And if it doesn't happen, I don't have any joy. I instead have frustration or anger or great fear or controlling sorrow. Something along those lines, depending on the circumstances. It's what my heart is fixed on. My hope is attached to it, and it doesn't come out like I want, so my hope is lost. What has to happen is that this has to get switched. You have to turn those things. To preach to yourself the gospel, day in and day out. To hold up the cross in front of you, day in and day out. Wrath, deserved, removed. Glory. Judgment hanging over your head, falling on Christ at the cross. Shame, legitimate, replaced by honor and glory bestowed by the Father on His children, on His inheritance. Hallelujah. Preach that to yourself. Remind yourself of that. Your greatest problems of wrath and shame, loss, have all been dealt with at the cross if you are a Christian. They are done, dealt with. Preach that to yourself. And doing that casts all the rest of life in a different light. It renews you in here. Puts these things in perspective. It doesn't make them happy circumstances. It doesn't make them all go away. But it gives you a different look at them. Don't deny them. Hold on to them too. Look at them through the cross. This is where the mental discipline part comes in. When Jesus says, down in verse 33, take heart, that's a command. Similar to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive. There's a decision, moment by moment by moment by moment, that you have to make. Am I going to grab a hold of that and force myself to look at it in the light of the cross? Or am I going to grab it and wander off with it somewhere else? Watch myself fall off an emotional cliff. What are you going to do? They both assume that you have the final say on what your heart dwells on, what your mind dwells on. You don't have the final say on what pops into your mind. I'm walking through the grocery store last night, and I walk by a conversation that is, I was shocked by because of how obscene it was between people, random people passing themselves in the grocery store. Like, wow, I have no control over that. But between then and now, I do have control if I think about it. Turn it over in my mind, play with it a little bit, wonder what it would be like to be in so-and-so's shoes in that conversation, wonder what they did with that afterwards. I do have control over that. I can't forget that happened. I can hold it up in light of the cross. Jesus here, Paul there, assume that you have control over that. Take the thought captive. Take heart. Compare the troubles in the world to the fact that Jesus has triumphed over the world and take heart. Choose Christ and His truth over this hurting, pain reality. I can do that. You can do that. You can take the painful truths and the hard realities of life and hold them up and say something like perhaps, Lord, by faith I believe that you have conquered this 
and it will come to an end, and that as I hide my heart in you, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to believe that. Reinforce it in me, Lord. Or you can pray, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing here with this. And if I were you, I wouldn't do that. But I do look at the cross and I believe that you have loved me with an everlasting love there, solving my greatest problem. And so it makes sense that you are still loving me now. You kept your promise to deliver me from sin, deliver me from wrath. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe that you will keep your promise to only do good to your children, even in this thing. Support my heart. Or perhaps you pray, Lord, I believe that because you have made me your child, I am fabulously rich, though the checkbook says otherwise. I lost my job. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Lord, meet my daily need. Give me my daily bread. And help me to go about pursuing a solution to that in faith, not in fear, not cutting corners in unrighteousness. Those situations, others like them, what you're doing is you're taking a reality, a particular pain or a hurt, and you're saying, it's true. I don't like that. Nobody would. It's true, and so is this. Which way am I going to look at it? Faith says, I'm going to look at it with the cross first. The cross in front of me. Strong testimony about God's attitude towards me. You can do that. You have to do that. And there's a really strong incentive to do that. Do you get the strong incentive? Jesus says that when you guys come to understand the cross, you're going to be overjoyed, and no one will be able to take that joy away from you. Well, you can surrender it. No one can take it from you. Joy is held out for you here. Joy is held out for you here. If you live and breathe cross-centeredly, if you live and breathe gospel-centeredly, looking at everything else through Christ's work on the cross, joy will run over your life. Jesus said it, it's true. Choose that moment by moment. I'm not saying that it's simple. Lots of stuff's going to randomly come your way in grocery stores, in doctor's offices, at work, in the neighborhood. Lots of stuff. A lot of it not fun. It's going to come at you. But you have the Spirit. He wants to glorify Christ and grow you. Trust Him. Cry out to Him in, in anguish and say, Give me help here right now because this is a strong temptation. Give me help to see Christ and the cross. Pray like that. He'll do that. And if you're not a Christian, oh, there's joy held out for you that's like behind a glass wall here. You can see it. You can't come to it though. You can come to Christ and then come to the joy. 
Give your heart to Christ. There's a lot of joy in the cross. Guilt and shame removed from you. At the cross, the Messiah's deliverance from this problem and from this problem, at the cross, the deliverance has happened. Living cross-centeredly will remind you of it, remind you of God's attitude towards you. And that begins to move us on to the second result from the cross. This is much shorter here. In the middle of verse 23, Jesus moves on to a different subject, introducing it again with another truly, truly. And he deals with this one more briefly. And in a way, it's an extension of the first one, but it's a little more focused. Here's the the second result. At the cross, Christ has won for you the heart of the Father and the ear of the Father. He's won for you the Father's heart and therefore the Father's ear in prayer. Middle 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Unless we misunderstand that when Jesus says, ask in my name, that what he means is, I'll go ask for you because you can't. He clarifies that a few verses later. It's not that I'm going to go in instead of you, because the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. Who's you? You who have loved Christ. To believe the truth about him. Not, let me be really careful here, not some Jesus that's culturally defined out there. This Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the book of John. Within the beginning with God and was God. Fully. Came down to earth taking on a body. Went to the cross to pay for sin. That Jesus. Sent from God the Father to the world. Returning back to God the Father. That Jesus. If you've loved Him, if you've embraced Him by faith, and your heart is won over to Him, you stand in the Father's love. You've won His heart. Christ has won His heart for you at the cross. He's changed from wrath towards you to love towards you. So, you have His ear. Talk to Him. Like a child talks to a parent. I had this happen earlier this week. One of my kids was dealing with a problem with another one of my kids and came to me um, emotionally over the edge. And I, I said, is that the way you're supposed to address this problem? Meaning, get your emotions under control. But what was heard was, I'm just spouting off. I'm supposed to address it by talking to Dad. And so then... In response to my, is that the way you're supposed to address this problem? Was a, Dad, will you help me with this? And I thought, that's not what I meant, but that's fair. <laughs> yes. That's what God wants from us. Will you help me with this? Pray. That's what he's after. How many times has he said this in this section? Talk to the Father. Go and pray in my name. This is the fifth time that's come up in these chapters. Now, that does not mean that we tack on the end of each prayer in Jesus' name, and therefore it's done. It means, as I've said earlier, that we pray in accord with what Jesus stands for. 
in line with his name. So you pray like, Father, Jesus said this. Father, Jesus taught us this. Father, Jesus loves this. Will you do that for me? Will you help me with that? And he will. He will do that. And joy runs out of that all over the place because you say, I'm engaged with God and He's active in my life and changing me to be more like Christ. Glory! Joy comes from that. Now, an obvious caution. I think it's obvious at least. This is not a promise that you're going to become God and have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It should be obvious, I think. Not giving us carte blanche to ask anything that we want. And therefore, God has to do it. Otherwise, this verse is false. No. Remember back in chapter 15, verse 7, he said, If you abide in me, if you stay in me, if you are connected to me, if you live in me, and my word abides in you, my word's connected to you, my word stays in you, my word runs through you, like sap running through branches in a tree, it gives you life. What's the result of that? Well, you're changed to be like him. Go ahead and ask for whatever you want, because you want what I want. And you'll get it. Next verse says, That's how God's glorified. By so working in His people that He makes them into His own image and then gives them their heart's desires. Showing them to be His disciples. Very practically, it's the difference between praying these two prayers. It's the difference between praying, Lord, and you can pray both of these, but there's a difference in confidence level. You can pray, Lord, Help me to close this sale by Friday so I meet my third quarter sales goals. You can pray that. He loves you. He wants you to talk to him about it. But he hasn't promised to help you close this sale by Friday so that you can meet these goals. Difference between that prayer and praying, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Help me to work diligently. Help me to trust you and be wise in my work employing holiness in all aspects of my life. It would seem to me that closing this sales deal by Friday would be a good way to do that. So I want to ask for that. I know that you want me to talk to you about my desires, but your will be done. See those two different prayers? You can pray both of them. Do pray both of them. I pray both of those ways. But he will answer this one. He will. And he might answer this one. Ask him for both. This comes down to my life. I reflect on this. I've been reading these things here in these chapters in John, seeing this a lot about prayer, and then, so it's in the back of my mind, and I was reading in Luke chapter 10. There's a statement there in verse 2 of Luke 10, where Jesus says, Ask, or pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And I read that and thought, is Jesus going to answer that prayer? Is, is the Father going to answer that, the Lord of the harvest? Yes. For sure. Jesus told me to pray that earnestly. That's on Jesus' heart. The Father will answer that prayer. Now, if I pray, send Tom to China, I don't have any promise for that. I'm going to pray things like that. But why don't I pray earnestly that the Lord would raise up laborers in this harvest field? I'm convicted by that as I'm thinking about it. You know, there used to be a time when I would pray more like that. Why don't I do that anymore? 
just wandering off into other things. I've been convicted by that, and I've started to pray that again. And I've started to pray some other things. I've come across them in the Bible, thinking, there it is, the heart of Jesus. He wants to do that. Pray. Are you praying for laborers to go out into the harvest field? Are you praying for holiness to grow in your life? Are you praying for the fruit of the Spirit generally to develop? Any of them in specific that you need? Pray. The whole point here, at the cross, Christ has won us access to the Father, but access is different than actually going. Giving you a key is not the same as you actually going into the room. You now have the privilege of approaching the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in the time of need. Go. Pray. He's opened up the way. He's won for you the Father's heart and therefore the Father's ear. Pray. At the cross, deliverance has happened in here, so throw the cross up in front of the rest of life. And as you do those things, joy will cover your life. Contemplate the cross and find joy. Let me pray. Lord, would you make the cross real to us? Would you make the gospel real to us? Most of us here are so familiar that we run a danger of forgetting. Run a danger, we are in danger of not being gripped by it. And so I pray for grace on us, myself, my brothers and sisters here, and grip us with the cross. Build into us mental discipline to live cross centeredly. Lord, stir up in your people here a spirit of prayer. Thank you for making it possible for both of those things to happen in us and for joy to happen in us. And I pray, God, bring it about. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.